We are in part two of our sermon series, You're Not Far. If you missed part one, it's up online, it's on YouTube, you can check it out, watch that, watch the whole service if you like. But as we noticed last week, the story that we're going through in this series is a story that never should have made its way out of Rome. It never should have survived Rome, but it did. It's the story of Jesus as told by the apostle Peter, who dictated this story to a guy named John Mark. We know him as Mark. Mark was Peter's traveling companion. So for over 30 years after the crucifixion, Peter traveled throughout that region, all throughout Israel, through the Mediterranean, and he told his story as he went. And when he was in his 50s, which is really crazy when you, when you hear some of this stuff from antiquity, from ancient days, everybody gets everything accomplished really early in their life. When you see the ages of some of these people who changed the world and they're in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, you go, wow, I had no idea. Uh, if anyone's ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a German pastor who, who led a movement against the Nazis during World War II, when, when Bonhoeffer died, if you haven't read his biography, I just spoiled the ending for you, but when Bonhoeffer died, he was only 39 years old, and he accomplished so much in his 39 years. So anyway, when Peter was in his 50s, he was arrested by the Roman emperor Nero, and he was imprisoned in Rome, and he would stay there until Nero had him executed. Now, we don't know the specifics of Peter's imprisonment. Uh, in those days, there were prison cells, but there was also a lot of house arrests, so we don't know how that exactly happened. But we do know that Mark, who traveled with Peter, had heard Peter tell his story of Jesus over and over and over again. So when Peter was imprisoned, Mark took it upon himself to have Peter tell the story of Jesus to him one more time so that he could write it down, so he could preserve it for posterity, so he could preserve it for us. And the story that Peter told to Mark comes to us in the form of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Peter died in about 65 or 66 AD. So, so not terribly long after Jesus was resurrected. And, and this first century document, the Gospel of Mark, would eventually be collected along with some of the Apostle Paul's letters and other letters and the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. And they would be put together to put together with the Jewish Bible, with the Hebrew Bible, with the Old Testament to become the book that we call the Bible, right? Well, Peter spent years with Jesus. And after the crucifixion, Peter continued to believe that Jesus, his teacher, his rabbi, as we're going to see in a minute, was somebody special. So if you can, in your mind's eye, just picture Peter, a man in his 50s who's facing execution, is sitting there with his friend, his young friend, Mark, and he's sort of giving him the whole story. He's downloading the story into Mark's brain, onto Mark's, onto the quill and onto the parchment, just one last time for Mark to record. Now, Mark knew Peter's story. He'd been with him for a few years, but he knew that Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus. He was one of the 12. He was there with Jesus. He saw everything. And Mark knew that Peter's story about Jesus would change people's lives. Well, as we saw last week, here is how Mark's gospel begins, Peter's words, Mark's gospel, 
And it's, it's like when, when Peter starts off telling us a story, he wants to start at the beginning. He wants to start with the big picture. So that's what he does. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And as we said last week, if your understanding of Christianity is not good news to you, then you've never heard Peter's version of Christianity. Now, this is pretty remarkable. 30 plus years after the crucifixion, Peter was still certain, positive, that his friend, his mentor, his rabbi was indeed who he said he was. He was indeed the Son of God. And Peter was certain of this because of the things that he had heard Jesus teach and the things that he saw Jesus do, both during his earthly ministry and after Jesus came back from the dead. When you see somebody die a horrible death by crucifixion on a cross, and then the next day, or three days later, you're having breakfast with him on the beach, you tend to believe what he's telling you. I mean, that, that's pretty compelling. And it's because of Peter's testimony, along with the testimony of other eyewitnesses who were there, Matthew and John among them, we can know with that same certainty that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Peter and the other apostles and other people who followed Jesus risked their lives to document all of this evidence for us. So anyway, after Peter's introduction here in Mark's gospel, after he told us a little bit about John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin who was born a little bit before and he heralded the way for Jesus to come, Peter told us that John the Baptist went to prison. In verse 14, then he said, Jesus then went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news about God. Now, when we read this, there's a question that begs to be asked. And that question is, all right, what exactly is the good news of God that he's talking about? Well, if you've been coming here a while or you've spent time in another Bible teaching church, you might be inclined to more strictly define this phrase, good news, the good news of God. You might be inclined to strictly define it like this. Jesus died for your sin, and if you put your faith in him, you go to heaven when you die. And of course, that is what the Bible teaches us. That is true. But at that point in history, it hadn't happened yet. So that's not what Peter is talking about here at this moment. Peter would have said that'll come later. And it did come later. It came about three years later. But then Peter would have followed up by saying, here's the good news about God that Jesus was preaching everywhere he went. Here is the theme of Jesus' earthly ministry. We go to Mark 1.15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Or some translations translate it, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, as we talked about last week, everything that came before in the Jewish world and everything that came before in the pagan world was all seemingly in preparation for what God was going to do at that moment. At that moment, as Jesus said, the kingship of God was near because Jesus was there. Jesus, the king, had come to town. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, 
We know the word repent as well. The word repent means to turn. But in this particular context, it doesn't mean to turn from your sin, but rather it means to turn your life towards the new kingdom of God on earth and embrace the new reality, this new way of living, this new way of relating to other people. So that's what Peter was telling us in this very first chapter of Mark. And Peter was just getting started. And the people's response was amazing. After Jesus said that, Jesus began to go viral. We think we invented that. Jesus invented that. He went viral. The news about the rabbi Jesus and this new kingdom of God began to spread throughout the region. And Jesus drew a crowd wherever he went. In fact, it's interesting. In Mark's gospel, the word crowd appears in nearly every single chapter. And the crowds were gathering to hear Jesus. Why? Because Mark 1.22, because Jesus taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. That means that. You know, when you're listening to a teacher, you're sitting in class and they're teaching you stuff and you go, you don't know this on your own. You read it somewhere. Yeah, maybe someone taught it to you. But Jesus taught it as if he was in there. He was in the mix. He had authority and that's exactly what was true. So to help us visualize just how far the news of Jesus' arrival spread, I want to show you the map that we used last week. So if you take a look at the map behind me, at the top of the map, uh, you'll, see, you'll see kind of a little circle, almost looks like a little upside-down pear. Uh, that is the Sea of Galilee, okay? Connected to the Sea of Galilee, you see this kind of wiggly blue line that goes into a bigger sort of blue oval. That blue oval is the Dead Sea. So you have the Sea of Galilee at the top, the Dead Sea at the bottom, right at the top of the Dead Sea, that's where Jerusalem is, that's where the temple is and all that. Up there in Galilee, uh, I should go this way, up there in Galilee, that's where Jesus was from and that's where the region we're going to be talking about today. All right, so we're going to take a look at that. Now, remember all of these things as we continue on. Now, Jesus began his earthly ministry up there, up north, in the Galilee region. You see where it says Galilee up there and kind of side, inside the yellow? That's where Jesus was from. You'll see Nazareth up there as well. Well, Peter was from there too. Peter was a Galilean. And throughout the whole region, that whole area that you see on the map, word was spreading that something game-changing had arrived, had happened up in the Galilee region. That's very far away from Jerusalem. So this is far away from the temple. Some big religious movement is taking place. So let's pray, and then we'll pick up where we left off last week. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together today as your people, as the body of Christ. Thank you for opening our hearts and minds to your message. Thank you for giving us this calling to be a part of your kingdom, to be a part of what you're doing here on earth. God, as we read your word this morning, as we try to understand what you would have us know about you, help us. Help us to lean in. Help us to make this a part of who we are so that we can make a difference here for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to be focusing on three narratives that had the effect of changing the way that we view the world. And let me tell you something. This is something that we as followers of Jesus really need to wrap our heads around. The world as it stands now seems to be imploding, doesn't it? It seems to be a mess. I wake up every morning and I go through the news and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, horrible stuff. And you know, with the fact that we have this 
information generation. We get to learn things. We learn about all the horrible things that happen all over the place, not just horrible things that happen in our own circle. And it makes us feel worse. We think, oh my gosh, what is happening out there? Is the world worse than it used to be? Well, it sure seems it, doesn't it? So we have to understand what we're called to do and how we're called to live here inside of this mess. So these three narratives are going to help us to understand how to change the way that we view the world. And when we look at these three narratives together, we'll be able to see that Peter wanted us to understand just what a big deal, just how disruptive Jesus' ministry and teachings were. Now, when I say disruptive, I'm referring to the way in which each of the three worldviews that were prevalent in Jesus' day, the pagan worldview, that's Greek and Roman mythology, the Greek and Roman worldview, and when I say that, I'm more thinking about the Stoics and the philosophers and how they looked at things, and the Jewish worldview, they would all be forever upended once we understood the worldview of the people of Jesus. Now, Peter described for us how Jesus introduced a new way of thinking about almost everything. And he also described how different Jesus' kingdom was going to be. So here we go. In the first example, we're going to see how Jesus ignored certain religious practices that were made by men. In the second example, we're going to see how Jesus claimed that he had the power to forgive sin. And in the final example, the third example, we're going to see just how comfortable Jesus was with unrepentant sinners. Now, in each of these examples, Peter shows us that we're going to see how Jesus came along and cleared the way, these three op- cleared the way through these three obstacles, which sadly, in a few hundred years in church history, the organized church would add back in a lot of these obstacles which blocked and discouraged many people, but that's a discussion for another sermon series. So now, take a look at the text. We're going to go to Mark chapter 1, verse 39. I'll be using the New International Version. If you have a Bible, if you have a Bible app, feel free to open it, use it, read it, follow along. Use whatever version you like. You'll be able to follow along. They're all pretty similar. So here we go. Mark chapter 1, verse 39. So Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out Demons. So Jesus was in the region where he's from, preaching in the synagogues. Those are the places where the Jews would gather outside of the temple, gather with a rabbi and study their Torah and study the word. And so before long, a man with leprosy comes to Jesus and he begs him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, this is interesting. Today, we know what leprosy is and we know how to treat it. Basically, leprosy today is is a very curable bacterial infection. But in Jesus' day, they didn't know what we know. And leprosy was a devastating disease. And not only that, because medicine was still quite primitive at that time, people would call any skin rash leprosy, any skin infection leprosy. And they would treat the victims or the sufferers of that skin infection, skin disease, leprosy, they would treat them accordingly. So when someone in the Jewish community was diagnosed with leprosy, they were forced to remain separate from their community until such time, if ever, that they were deemed clean again. Now, in those days, there were very few things more shameful than being cast out of one's community. Community was everything. 
And as a result, the people who were determined to have leprosy, well, they became outcasts. They were cast out of their community. And consequently, these people felt like they were in limbo. They didn't belong anywhere. They weren't dying. Leprosy wouldn't kill them. It would harm their their nerves, and they'd lose limbs, and they'd lose body parts. It's It's horrible, but they didn't die from it. But they weren't permitted to participate in the life of their communities either. So in a sense, these people felt like they were suspended between heaven and earth because they were shunned, because no one ever touched them. All right, so now let's look at the verse. A leper came to Jesus and said to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So what the man said perfectly reflects the man's expression of faith. This is a great way to talk about what faith in God means. Confident Jesus can, hoping Jesus will. That makes sense? Confident Jesus can. I know if I pray to Jesus, if I ask for something, whatever, I know he can. But I'm hoping he will. I'm hoping that's God's will. I'm hoping Jesus will answer my prayer. Now, When this man came up to Jesus, of course, Jesus reacted, and his reaction was remarkable. And in the scripture, in Mark 141, it says this, Jesus was indignant. Now, when we think of indignant, indignant is this, how dare you, right? That's indignant. Clutching your pearls, oh no, that's indignant, okay? But that translation, using the word indignant, makes Jesus sound kind of angry with the man, doesn't it? Jesus was indignant. How dare you come to me? But that's where the translation kind of falls off a bit. In the Greek, it indicates that Jesus wasn't angry with the man. Jesus was angry with the way that the religious system had turned its back on the man, turned its back on somebody in his situation, because that wasn't a loving way to treat a member of the community. How do I know that's what Jesus meant? Because we're going later on in the verse. So instead of ostracizing the man, remember, if Jesus was mad at the man, he would have turned his back and walked away. So he didn't do that. Instead, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. And he said, I am willing. Be clean. So remember, Peter's the one telling this story. And upon seeing Jesus reach out and get ready to touch a leper... Can you imagine what was going through Peter's mind? I kind of feel like Peter must have been thinking, yikes, Jesus, don't, 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 don't touch him. A, you might get leprosy, and B, then you'll be unclean too. But Jesus touched him anyway. Because Jesus wasn't going to be constrained by the Jewish purity laws, the man-made Jewish purity laws, if it meant that he wouldn't be able to show the man the love that he deserved. Jesus put the needs of others over religious ritual and over cultural taboos. So after Jesus touched the man, seemingly putting his own health at risk, what happened? Verse 42. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And then Jesus sent him away. He sent him away at once with a strong warning. And don't tell anyone what I just did. By the way, what did the leper do? He told everyone. Yes, I'll show you that in a minute. But before that happened, Jesus also told the man to do something else. Here's what he said. He said, go and show yourself to the priest. And then offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony 
to them. In other words, go show the priests, the guys who kick you out, go show them that you're better. Go show them that you're healed. It's a testimony of the healer. This is interesting. Jesus told the man, I want you to go show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices, those sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And he told him to do that because Moses had commanded anyone who had been cured of leprosy to travel back to the temple in Jerusalem. So remember, we're up here in this sort of Galilee region, and that is quite a way away to get all the way down to Jerusalem. But that's what the law said. You have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to be examined by a priest so that you can be declared ceremonially clean and thereby readmitted into Jewish society. But that requirement also mandated that anyone who touched somebody who was ceremonially unclean was also ceremonially unclean and needed to go to the temple. But Jesus didn't go to the temple with the man. He broke that law, that man-made law, because Jesus was ushering in a time of transition. Now, by the way, don't, don't assume for a moment Jesus sinned. He didn't sin. He didn't violate God's command. He violated man's command. But Jesus was ushering in something new. The new covenant was coming in. The old covenant was being changed, reborn, reimagined, repurposed. And as we just saw, the man didn't keep quiet about it. So here we go. Instead, Jesus said, don't say a word. Gotcha. And then he goes out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. It is tough to blame the guy, right? I mean, he just experienced a miracle. But what happened? Well, as a result of all the publicity, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in the lonely places. That didn't stop people, though. When word continued to spread about this healing, the people still came to Jesus from everywhere. So from there, Peter moves on with the story, and they go back to the big city of Capernaum, which is also located in that Galilee region where Peter, Jesus, and some of the other disciples were from. So we go on to Mark 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. The people began to surround Jesus. So he went into a large home, and he began to teach there in the large home, but a crowd followed him. Crowds followed him wherever he went. Verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left in the house, not even outside the door. It was filled up, the whole property was full, and Jesus preached the word to everybody who could hear him. But while Jesus was preaching, something strange happened. Verse 3, some men came, bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by the four of them. So I want you to picture this now. Four guys show up. They're carrying a buddy of theirs. He's on a pallet or a board, you may have heard it called a bed or a mat or a cot. All of these things are just translation issues. They're carrying them on something. Each one of them is holding a corner, and they're carrying this guy like on a stretcher. But it was too crowded for these guys to get their friend inside the house through the front door. So what do they do? Well, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they climbed up on the roof. And they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through the roof. And then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. So are you picturing this scene? Big mob scene, big house, everybody's crowded in. They can't 
can't even get near the front door. House is standing room only. And so the people are inside and they hear. And they're listening to Jesus teach, but they're hearing something scraping on the roof. They're kind of looking up and going, what, what the, what is going on? Now, it's interesting. I used to, I used to think that it was probably some sort of dirt, dirt roof or thatch roof or something like that. But Luke's gospel tells us that it was a tile roof which meant that it was probably the home of a wealthy person. So it's a big home, home of a wealthy person with a tile roof. So now you can imagine they're scratching through, and then there's these pieces of tile falling down around them, and the dust is settling, and there's, who knows, bitch, bitumen, and tar, and blah, just everything's falling, and people are dodging this stuff, and this hole keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the sun eventually peeks through the hole, And the noise continues to get louder and louder, and the hole keeps opening up. And soon the hole is big enough to allow a paralyzed man lying on some kind of bed to pass through it. That's a big hole. And then the four guys start lowering the bed all the way down until it lay on the floor at Jesus' feet. So imagine they're kind of looking down in the hole, and they're dropping their friend in to see where he's landing. And Jesus looks up. This guy just landed right in front of his feet. And verse 5 tells us, when Jesus saw their faith, how do you see faith? How do you see faith? Well, here it's the same thing as Jesus saw in the leper. Jesus knew that the leper and the paralyzed man were confident that Jesus can, and they were hoping that Jesus will. Confident God can, hoping God will. Now imagine how the mood in the house must have shifted. It must have been amazing. They must have been able to hear, hear a pin drop in that big crowd. So the man's lying on the ground. His friends are looking down the hole. And given this man's faith, what happens? Verse 5, Jesus says to the paralyzed man, Son, you're healed. No. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Your sins are forgiven? Is that why the guy went there? I thought the guy went there for healing. The text doesn't come out and say it, but you can imagine the crowd might have been a little confused. Why were they confused? Well, there are a few reasons. First off, people are incapable of forgiving sin. People can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. And secondly, that's not what the guy dropped in for. Right? But the implications of what Jesus said were not lost on his audience. Many in the crowd were thinking, Jesus, you're declaring that this man's sins are forgiven? That is impossible. There hasn't been a sacrifice. You are not a priest. And nobody went down to the temple in Jerusalem. What the heck, Jesus? Are you saying you are greater than the temple? Do you think that you can just waltz on in here and start forgiving people's sins just because you said so? You think that's what they were thinking? Actually, we know it is. How do we know by the text? Look at the next verse. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're thinking, hang on there, Jesus. 
You're standing there proclaiming that this man's sins are forgiven, but there's been no temple sacrifice? How dare you think you can just walk on in here and circumvent hundreds of years of our traditions? Imagine what Peter and the others must have thought. They must have thought, wow, I mean, I like this, this teacher, I like this rabbi, but this is not any ordinary rabbi. We've now seen him cast out demons, heal lepers, cure paralysis. What are we watching? What are we seeing here? And then Jesus took things even further. Verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Is Jesus reading their minds? It doesn't say that, but it kind of sort of says that. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? It's not in the text, but I imagine that Peter and the boys were going, and he knows what we're thinking? Like, seriously, who is this guy? And at that, I'm imagining here Jesus is smiling a little when he says to them, all right, verse 9, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, to get a full understanding of the mood of the situation here, let me give you a little background. In just about every culture at that time, there was a presumed correlation, a presumed cause and effect connection between behavior and illness, or in Christian terms, between sin and sickness. We've seen it before. Whenever a person was sick or blind or had some sort of malady, some sort of affliction, people assumed that it was as a result of the person's sin. People believed that there was a direct correlation between sickness and sin. If something was wrong with you, the assumption was that you've sinned. Jesus thoroughly rejects that notion. He throws it out. And instead, Jesus was holding, of course, to the biblical understanding of sin, which is set out in Genesis. In Genesis, we see how it works. Once mankind sinned, once God's first image bearers, God's first creation, Adam and Eve, disobeyed him, it opened the door for sin and sickness and death to enter the world. Meaning that there is a relationship between sin, sickness, and death, but it's not a direct relationship. It's not a one-to-one relationship. That explains why sometimes wicked people prosper and righteous people get sick and die. I have a mentor who likes to say, sometimes a believer gets sick so God can work through their lives so the non-believers will understand the difference between a believer and a non-believer. And though we don't completely comprehend it, it is a truth, and it's played out over and over again throughout human history. And that's where Jesus was going with his statement. Here's what he says in verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, with this statement, Jesus changed the game. The title Son of Man is an Old Testament Hebrew messianic term. It's used to refer to the Messiah. It's a term that the Jews understood can only refer to a Messiah. And Jesus had just adopted that term about himself. Now, the religious people of his day found that very offensive. And among themselves, they're thinking, who could possibly claim to forgive sin? How could they ever prove that they forgave sin? 
Well, there was one way. Verse 10, so Jesus said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And at that moment, the disciples and the other people in the crowd must have thought, if he can do that, maybe he can reverse the consequences of sin. And with that, verse 12, the man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And Peter tells us the crowd had never seen anything like it. As we saw at the beginning, Jesus said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus said, turn in my direction and accept my words about you and your sin. Repent and believe this good news. Because of Jesus' love, if you have gone to him in your head, in your heart, and you've confessed your sin, and understanding what he did for you by paying for that sin on a Roman cross, and by being buried, but then rising from the dead and ascending to heaven, if you have surrendered your life to him, God the Father has forgiven you and erased your sin so that when God sees you, he no longer sees your sin. He only sees the perfection of his perfect son. If you've given your life to Jesus in that way, your heavenly Father no longer holds your sin against you. And if God doesn't hold your sin against you, who are you to hold your sin against yourself? So with this account, Peter set up the conflict that we're going to see over and over and over again between Jesus and the religious leaders. When Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sin, and when he basically removed the need for the entire temple system, he became the enemy of the religious leaders. And soon, word about him would reach all the way back down to Jerusalem. And in an upcoming message, we're going to see some of the religious leaders come from Jerusalem up to the Galilee to try to see what Jesus was up to. Anywhere, anyway, from there, Peter moves on to our third narrative. Here's our map again. So Jesus and the, and the boys are still up in the Galilee region up there on the top of the map. And he's going to go to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a city surrounded by a bunch of small fishing villages. As I alluded to a few minutes ago, one of those villages was the home of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So they knew Capernaum. Capernaum's where the Costco was, okay? So they had to drive there, like we have to drive to Pompano or, right? So that's kind of what that is. So bigger town, that's where they're from. They knew Capernaum. It was the closest big town to where they're from. And it was where they frequently went to sell their fish, to sell their catch, and to pick up supplies, and to, to attend their synagogue. Their town wasn't big enough for their own synagogue. Most likely, they attended the synagogue in Capernaum. So in Capernaum, the guys were within walking distance of their homes. Anyway, so they're walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, it's also called the Lake Gennesaret, Lake, Lake Gennesaret. They'd fished this place for years. They knew everybody on the lake. They knew all the merchants. They knew all the people. They knew all the neighbors. Everybody knew who they were. It's interesting as a sidebar here. You know, in those days, it was very rare for somebody to travel more than 25 miles from their home. Unless they were going all the way down to Jerusalem to the temple or over to the Mediterranean Sea to do some deep sea fishing or something. Well, anyway, Mark 2, 13 once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. Okay, that's Lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, 
So Peter probably told Mark all about Levi, because Mark was probably unfamiliar with the area himself. Mark was a Greek, probably a, what we would call a Hellenized Jew. He was, he was a Jew, but he was more, more Greek, more Roman than he was Jewish. And also, if you've ever asked yourself, well, why does the Bible do that? Why does the Bible identify people by using the name of their fathers? Well, it's because in that part of the world, at that time in history, people didn't have last names. People didn't have surnames. And so they identified themselves by their fathers, son of. Some countries still do that. In Iceland, every person, every Icelandic person born in Iceland, every Icelander, his last name has S-S-O-N at the end of it, son Bjorn's son, Harris son, Jordan's son, okay? If you're a woman, it has daughter, D-O-T-T-I-R after it. So you are Bjorn's daughter, right? Isn't that interesting? Anyway. Later on, professions would be added. My last name comes from my family's profession back where we came from. Silver glate, loosely translated, means pure silver. Somehow, someway, we were connected to the silver trade. So in the first century, Levi was a very common name. It's derived from the tribe of Levi, the Levites. So because it's a common name, there are a lot of Levites running around. Peter had to clarify that he was talking about Levi, the son of Alphaeus. All right, moving on. As they walked by the Sea of Galilee, they saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before. Tax collectors were their own class of sinner. Tax collectors were essentially traitorous thieves. They worked for Rome, the government that was oppressing their people. And they worked for Rome collecting taxes and duties from their people. And in their job, the tax collectors were, were able, allowed to collect as much money as they could get their hands on. As long as the Romans got their cut, they didn't care. And as a result, there was no way for anyone to know what they were up to, what they were doing with their business, how much they kept for themselves. And as a result of that, any Jewish man who took on that profession was absolutely hated by his fellow Jews, was loathed. He was hated by his own family. And on top of that, Levi was working for a very unpopular governor. He was working for the governor, Herod Antipas. Remember, Antipas, we talked about it last week, had just recently had the beloved John the Baptist executed, cut off his head. So the people hated the governor, and they hated anybody who worked for the governor, and they particularly hated any Jew who stole money from his own people to give to the governor. So suffice it to say, Levi was not a popular person in his community. And Peter knew him. It's, it's probable, we don't see this in the scripture, but it's a good guess, that because the community was so small and so connected, it's possible Levi had actually had interactions with Peter. He'd probably overcharged Peter, stolen from Peter in the past, stealing customs fees or transit fees. But at that moment, Peter wasn't just a fisherman anymore. He kind of moved up in the world. He'd become a student, a student of the rabbi that the whole region was talking about. And so Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're walking with Jesus, and they saw Levi. Now, we know Levi by the name what? Matthew. I know that gets confusing. Don't forget, most of the Jews at that time, living in Rome, living in that area, living in Roman-controlled territories, like what we're seeing up here, or like we saw on the map, they went by two names. They had a Jewish name. In this case, Levi, and then they have a Greek or Roman name. Here it was Matthew. 
That's the same. If you've met somebody who, who comes from China and they have a name that we can't pronounce in English, they'll usually come up with some sort of Americanized name. Same with people from certain Latin countries. People from, I have a other name. I have a Jewish name. Does anybody know what my Jewish name is? I'll tell you later. Anyway. Upon seeing Matthew, Jesus stopped at Matthew's tax booth. And though we don't know what Peter was thinking, we can assume it was something like, ugh, why are you stopping there? I hate this Matthew guy. Well, to finish up the story of how Jesus disrupted everything, Peter told Mark, man, it was nuts. Jesus walked over to this dirt ball, and here's what he said to him. He said this, follow me. It is not too difficult to envision that Peter had little problem with the first two actions of Jesus that we looked at in this chapter. When Jesus healed the leper, yeah, it was kind of gross. But the leper was more a person to be pitied and not hated. And when Jesus healed the paralyzed guy after forgiving his sin, it's possible Peter was thinking, all right, you forgave that poor man's sin. It's not a big thing, really. He probably didn't sin much. I mean, the guy couldn't move. How much could he sin? But when it came to Matthew, a man who was widely hated and whose sin was open and notorious and well-known, that had to bug the heck out of Peter. Associating with a tax collector is not good for one's reputation. And it certainly wasn't good for Jesus' reputation. And it wasn't good for his ministry. And it wasn't good for the whole movement. And besides, as a pastor friend of mine likes to surmise, people, Peter was probably happy with, with the guys in the band as it was. Uh, I, like, I like these guys. They're fishermen like me. So bringing Matthew into the group would be a lot like bringing a new person into your established small group, right? Come on, boss. We've already got a good small group. We've been together for, for all, a long time now. We all get along so well. Why would you want to mess that up? But then I'm sure to their amazement and contempt, Levi got up and followed Jesus. By the way, if you've watched The Chosen on, on TV, which if you haven't, I recommend it, I think they did a really nice job conveying the probable attitude of the disciples when Matthew was called. If you watched it, you can see that they really don't like Matthew very much at first. All right, let's land this plane now. What should we take away from these three stories of how Jesus disrupted the religious establishment of his day? Well, it's this. The kingdom of God has come near, and everyone was invited to participate in it. Even people like Matthew, who'd literally stolen from his own kind out of greed. And even people like Peter, who would later on betray his Savior out of fear. And even people like me, who spent the first 30 years of life far from God and serving only myself and my needs and my wants. Jesus invited people like Peter and Andrew and James, and John, and Matthew, and me, and also people like you to participate in the new kingdom that was being ushered in by a new king, King Jesus. Jesus had come to institute a new way. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus' new way would continue to crash into Peter's way, which was on its way out. Why is that? Because it was time. The time had come. 
the kingdom of God was at hand. And it brought with it a new understanding of ourselves and a new way of understanding the world in which we lived. And it would eventually upend all of Peter's old ways and would upend his fear and his aggression and his insecurities and his prejudices. And it will do the very same thing for our fears and our aggression and our insecurities and our prejudices as well. But it's a much, much better way. It's a way to eternal life, both here on earth and in the life to come. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John had a decision to make. Should they just abandon Jesus and save their reputations? Or should they repent and believe this good news, that God accepts sinners and invites them into his new kind of kingdom? So what happened next? We'll pick up the story right there next week in part three of You're Not Far. And I hope that you'll all join us and bring your friends. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the story that you've preserved for thousands of years just so that today, in our crazy world, we can understand that you're calling us to something so much higher and something so much better. God, we're thankful that you've drawn us to yourself. We're humbled by the fact that you know everything about us and yet love us anyway. And God, we ask that we'd be able to follow you with all that we have and tell the world about you. In Jesus' name, amen.